We're starting Genesis, and uh, today I have one goal, kind of introduce the book, uh, get the ball rolling. I'm not going to dive into a bunch of apologetic stuff. You'll kind of see that. Uh, so we're starting Genesis. So turn to the book of Genesis. If you can't find it, well, look on your neighbor's Bible, and uh, there you have it. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Father, I thank you for this brilliant book of beginnings. And I pray, Lord, that we would be able to hear what it actually says. Not what we hope or want, I want to make it say, but what it actually says. So may we have ears, fresh ears, to hear this incredible launching text the way that you intended it to be heard. So speak, and may we listen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, have you ever heard the statement that there are no stupid questions? Is that right? No, not at all. It's a stupid statement. <laughs> there are stupid questions. So to prove this, I went on this site, it's called Yahoo Answers, where you can ask any question and the giant interwebs answers the question for you. So one of the less than brilliant questions was this. Is Christian Bale... He's an actor, Batman. Is Christian Bale a Christian? Because his parents must have known something when they named him. Here is the answer. Is Mitt Romney a baseball glove? That's funny. I'm sorry, that's really funny. <laughs> Another one was this. If you have twins, does it take 18 months to give birth? I answered that one, if you, yes, and if you have quadruplets, it takes three years, so it's really a long bummer. And then this one, maybe more sad than anything, was um, if the NFL is an American sport, why did New England get a team? Isn't that terrible? You're like, oh, wow, China's coming for us. <laughs> there are stupid questions. Minimally, there's wrong questions. And when I think about the book of Genesis, and I've read a lot on Genesis, I think that there are times we ask Genesis the wrong questions. It's a brilliant, incredible, one of my favorite books in the Bible. But often when I hear people talking about it or commenting on it, I think that's the wrong question. 
That's not the right, that's not what Genesis was written to ever have addressed. And very often these questions, they, they actually dominate Christian culture. I'll give you a few. How old is the earth? You ever had that discussion with people? Yeah, it's about as fun as bleeding athlete's foot. Like, really? And I'm going to show you, I don't think Genesis could ever possibly answer that. Instead, we just go round and round and round and round on it. Is evolution real? Can, can you either prove or can you negate evolution in, in Genesis 1 and 2? So there's, there's that big one. Did Adam have a belly button? Very important theological question, right? <laughs> I think he did, because every picture I've seen of him, he's got the belly button on him. <laughs> if he didn't, it'd be a great way to prove he was the first person. No, you weren't first. Yes, I was. Look, no belly button. <laughs> was it an innie? Was it an outie? What is God's perfect design? Like, you can get nutty with these questions, right? Where are the dinosaurs? I can't find dinosaurs in here. Right? I read about a talking snake. I mean, come on, the Bible has a talking snake, I'm out. That one does not have a leg to stand on, I'm sorry. So bad. <laughs> oh, man, I love that one. So you get all these kind of like this side that you wanna press this book to answer these questions. And what often happens is we make assumptions that actually go beyond what the text says and once we've made the assumption that's beyond what the text says, then we feel like we better defend our assumptions because we've made them. I call it the Trump policy. Isn't that what he does? He like makes this crazy assumption. Then he's actually got to defend it. You're like, what? Dude, just back off. Just say I was wrong. No way. The Donald said it. It's right. <laughs> By the way, I'll, I'll make one political statement. I rarely do this if you're new here. But eight years ago, Obama was the savior for the left, right? He was going to save the world. But if you read left-leaning periodicals like the Salon or like Huffington Post, and I, and I do to make sure I'm well-rounded, before Trump won, not after Trump has won, since, since Trump has won, Obama's gotten back up in the left. Like, he's still perfect. But before then, when they thought Hillary was going to win, there was a lot of negativity towards Obama. Tons of it. Like he didn't actually shut down Guantanamo Bay. He said he would. Um, the war thing, he has 10 times as many drone strikes as George W. Bush, the hated George W. Bush. 10 times as many, right? NSA, he has collected more information on the citizens of America than all the other presidents combined. So the, 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 there was before Trump won like this, oh, we're kind of disillusioned with him, Right? Now we have Trump, who the right is like, he's the savior of America. Listen to me very carefully. You'll be disillusioned if you believe that. There is one savior. His name is not Obama, and his name is not the Donald. His name is Jesus. And that's where our hope lies. Wow, I got a clap, man. Rare. <laughs> so that, that, that's my... Policy. I, I put my trust in Jesus, and it's really firm, and it's awesome. Um, but but there's this, this tendency, like oh, we're gonna fight. We're gonna I'm gonna fight over this. And so in Genesis, what I've seen is pe people make like these crazy remarks, 
and their assumptions that are not actually in the text, and, and then they have to fight over it. And, and I just go, oh, that, that's just weird. Why, why are you doing that? I told you about the gal that said, um, the fossil record was put there by Satan to test our faith. And I just said, do you want to nuance that at all? Nope. No, I got to go, man. I got to go comb my hair or tear it out. I'm not sure which right now. Like where in the Bible are you getting anything close to that? But once you put it out there, then it's like, we got to defend this thing because we've said it. So it kind of represents our position and it gets weird. We're fighting over things that, that I just say are stupid. And we got to allow Genesis to speak what it's actually supposed to speak on. And when we do, man, Genesis is brilliant. It's incredible. We'll do more apologetic stuff on Wednesdays, but it's brilliant because it answers the questions that matter. Not how did things happen, but why? The whys. We live the whys. We don't live the hows. We live the whys. So it answers, for me, questions on the three big spheres of life. They're number one, God. Here's what Genesis begins to tell us about God. It is God's self-revelation. God said, I need people to know who I am. Because what happens with humans is this, we begin to project onto God human tendencies. We make him like us. So God becomes petty and vindictive and jealous and juvenile and all these things because that's what we are. So then we begin to think the same things about God. So God gives us Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and these books to say, huh, that's not who I am. I'm gonna correct your misconception. So it tells us about God, number one, who he is. Number two, it tells this, this about God as well. Um, it tells us why there's something instead of nothing, right? Verse one, in the beginning, God created. Why is there something instead of nothing? Because God created, that's why. And the ontological that just means the early beginning stuff. The ontological arguments for God are phenomenal. They're so powerful. So Antony Flew, this famous atheist in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000s, converted in the 2000s because of the ontological arguments for God. In the beginning, God created. And atheists, they'll get um, maybe a little bit riled up. They're like, how can you believe in a virgin birth? You know, you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. I always ask them this. Yeah, but you believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Which one's harder, bro? Come on, right? You got a ton of faith. I wish I had that much faith because you believe this whole thing just, nothing, something. Wow, that's awesome. So the ontological arguments in Genesis are phenomenal. It tells us about design, God's design. That how did God want things to be? All of us have in our collective memory, I call it the echo of Eden, just this idea of what life is supposed to be. We all have this kind of, this is what life is supposed to be. I call it the echo of Eden. We know we are designed to live with our spouse in a paradise where you're fruitful and you multiply. That's our dream right there where we get to eat of every tree of the garden and we can still be naked and unashamed, which means there was no calorie problems back then. How awesome is that? You never had to ask, do these pants make me look fat? Number one, because there was no pants. 
And number two, there just didn't appear to be a problem with it. Like there's this echo and it's, and a lot of that comes, I believe, out of Genesis 1 and 2 because it was our design. You get God's design. You learn that about God. You learn about what really matters to God. One chapter on creation. What are the next 49 chapters about? People. Namely, from chapter three on, their redemption. What really matters to God? We get all hung up on the seven days that divide the world and God's like, I created it. And what I really am concerned about is Matt Heverly in Grants Pass, Oregon. Isn't that unbelievable? The creator and the sustainer of the universe says what really matters is you, me, us. That's what you learn when you ask the right questions. Tells us about God, number one. Tells us too about the cosmos. Um, is matter, material world, is it good or bad? Is the world good or bad? Yeah, Genesis 1, what is the rhythm? God creates something, and then what does he say about it? It's good. It's good. It's good. It is very good. And yet there lingers this Greek stoic attitude in the minds of most people that we think suffering makes God happy. That it, when we don't suffer, when we choose wakeboarding over witnessing on 6th Street, God's like, hell for you. You are not a good Christian. How could you do that? That lingers in us because there's this stoic attitude that's still in believers. And God in chapter one is laying out a, really a pushback against that whole attitude no way. We're not Gnostics. Spirit's good. Matter's bad. This thing is good. It's very good. That's why 1 Timothy 6, 17 says, God has given you everything to enjoy. Man, enjoy life. I've given it to you. And yet most believers, there is this back of the mind kind of idea, not really, not really. There's better, higher things and lower things to do. I've told you about my buddy with the truck. We were working together outside. It was December. He jumps out of his truck. It's a long drive, jumped out of his truck. And he's like, oh, I'm freezing, man. I'm like, why? Is your heater broke? He goes, no, I'm just not using it. I said, why? He said, because God's preparing me for something. I said, for what? North Dakota? They use their heaters there. You're being a moron, bro. Turn your heater on for crying out loud. But that's, there's a tinge of that in all of us. It somehow matters bad, but Genesis 1 is saying, no, no, it is good. It is good. It is very good. It tells us about the cosmos that this thing is not an accident. There is a purposeful step-by-step -step process by which God made it good. And we know that this is not an accidental clashing of chemicals or soup or something like that, that there is a very purposefulness to creation from Genesis chapter one. It tells us this about the cosmos. It tells us who's in charge. Who's in charge of earth? Who's in charge of the sky? Who's in charge of the sea? Who's in charge? By the way, that's next Sunday. And I think the answer might actually surprise you. It's not who you think. Because God's doing something that's bigger than you and I can imagine. And you see it right here in Genesis chapter one. 
This book tells us thirdly about us, God, cosmos, and us. What is a human? Have you ever sat back and thought like, what are humans supposed to be? What is our purpose? Why do we exist? How does this life work? You ever take time where you just unplug from iPhones and TVs and networks and work and driving people everywhere? If you just unplug from that whole thing and just say, how does this thing work? Because it doesn't seem to be working right now. Well, Genesis is written to help us understand how human life is supposed to work, right? You ever sit back and wonder why this thing is so screwed up? You listen to the news, read the daily paper, and just discouraged by it? Like, why is this thing so messed up? Well, Genesis tells us why this thing is so messed up. Ever wonder, is anyone gonna do anything about the mess? Genesis tells us there is someone who will do something about this mess. Have you ever wondered when you're the mess, how God thinks about you? Is he gonna smite me? Is he done with me? Is he cutting me off? How does God respond to me when I am the mess? Well, Genesis answers that kind of question. Ever wonder who is going to get us out of this mess? Genesis answers those questions. So I think the really big, important questions, man, you ask the right ones, Genesis has these clear, perfect answers. It's when we get over here in these assumptions that there's fighting and weirdness and craziness. But the big questions, there's absolute clarity. There's no argument. Oh, that's what's happening. It's awesome. And what I've seen just studying this thing is you look at the last 200 years, there's been this pitting of science and the Bible against each other, like they're enemies. And what has happened, I call it this. I'm not the only one people call it. There's a way that this has been walked out. It's called God of the gaps. So we believe God did all this stuff 200 years ago. But then we find a natural answer for a part of it. So what happens is we go, oh, okay, well, all right. So nature does that, but God did the rest of this. And we kind of relaunch our fortress. Okay, okay, and all of our answers. And then nature comes up with another answer. Naturalism comes up with another answer. So then we back off again and again and again and again and again. And what you've done now is you've shrunk God. Why? Because these are the wrong questions. Science and the Bible harmonize each other. I love science. I'm an engineer. I've got no problem with science. Enjoy it. I think it informs me, makes me see God gets bigger in my mind because I do something very different with science. He gets bigger and larger and more, and more majestic, majestic and brilliant in my mind. So you got to be careful of those things. I want God to look bigger every time I study the Bible. And that's what happens for me. And ultimately... We get lost in like these arguments about like, how old is the moon dust? Now, how does that have you have a better marriage? How does that make you flourish? How does that help you share Jesus? Inform me again, because I don't get that one. And yet tons and tons of energy is spent on that thing right there. While Genesis is saying, I'm gonna answer the big questions for you. I'm gonna answer the big questions. Not how, but why. We live the why, we don't live the how. Your iPhone 7, do you care how it was made? Okay, I used a four millimeter uh, stainless steel screw right there, and an integrated circuit over there. No, 
right? You care why it was made. What's its purpose? So you can text in church, (laughs) right? I see you. That's what you live. Okay, Genesis is concerned with that. How do you live? How does this work? And then what, what, what hopefully we'll see is this. There's, there's the surface of Genesis, but underneath it, there is a divine fingerprint that is pointing us to some major themes, some incredible things. And once you see those, you can never read Genesis the same again. Like, oh my goodness, that is brilliant. It's like this. Here's my best example. The Wizard of Oz. Who's seen The Wizard of Oz? Okay, still a valid illustration. The Wizard of Oz, I hated the movie the first time I saw it because Dorothy ends up in, you know, the land of Oz and she is uh, given the silver shoes in the movie, the ruby, but the really silver shoes. And then she goes through hell, right? Kidnapped by monkeys. Oh, my pretty. And at the end of the movie, the fairy godmother comes and says, oh, the answer you've had the whole time. Just click your heels together and say, I want to go home. Remember that? I was mad. I'm like, you are a wicked woman. Why didn't you tell her day one? Why does she have to go through all this hell? She should have just clicked her heels. You gave them to her day one. You are a wicked woman. So I've never got that out of my brain. Like, I hate that movie. But anyways, it's a great illustration, even though I hate the movie. There is in the movie this political thread. Because when Frank Baum wrote the movie, there was a big discussion in America. Do we move from the gold standard to a silver standard? So you have the yellow brick road, which represents the gold standard, and it ends where? The Wizard of Oz, who is a fraud. But the answer is Dorothy's silver shoe. So what's he saying right there? His political statement there is, we need to move from the gold standard to the silver standard. And then he has all the characters, they actually represent certain groups in America. The scarecrows represented the farmers. The farmers are brainless, right? They lack a brain. I'm, I'm just telling you what it means. I'm not, making, I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying in his story, the farmers are brainless. The tin man represents the factories who are heartless, just factories pumping them out, okay? The lion represents the politicians who are a bunch of cowards. Everyone got that one right. I love that. Cowards, yeah! (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) The heroine is Dorothy, who comes from where? Kansas. What's the answer to America's problem? The middle America. East coast is the wicked witch of the east. West coast is the wicked witch of the west. The answer comes from middle, good old-fashioned America. That's where the answer to our problems is. That's all in the book. When you read it with that understanding and you see the conversations they have, Dorothy has with the tin man or the scarecrow, you're like, oh my goodness, I know what he's saying now. Okay, that same idea is in the book of Genesis. That underneath it, God is saying something. He's moving his people towards something. And it's brilliant and amazing. I'll give you one appetizer. And it's in verses one and two. So let's look at those again real quick. 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here's what I believe. I'm not alone. I believe in verse one, God creates everything, including planet earth, our solar system, galaxy, sun, moon. Verse one, God creates everything, including earth, sun, moon, stars. If you're thinking there, huh? I thought he did that in the rest of these days. Come out Wednesday, I'll try to unpack that more, okay? So God, verse one, creates everything. Sun, moon, stars, everything. And then, and it's this term actually, heavens and earth. When heavens and earth are used, that phrase is used in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. The Hebrew of it, it's always the entirety. It's never like a separate little spot. Verse two, the earth, it's the Hebrew word ha-adetz. Very often, most often, it speaks of the promised land. The ha-adetz was without form and void, and darkness is over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So then there's this land, this ha-adetz, that it says it was without form and void, tovu abahu. Hebrew, people say, what does it mean? I see, look at how the Bible uses it. So the Bible uses this same phrase in Deuteronomy 32.10. And it's translated there, a howling wasteland. It's used by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 4.23. Right after King Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem, burns the temple, just pillages the place, and the land is described as tevuabahu, or uninhabitable, okay? So God looks at this section, and this section, this ha'adetz, it's uninhabitable for humans. It is not a good place to live. It's Wolf Creek. (laughs) If you live there, be armed and dangerous. It's a mission field. We'll pray for you. Please put it on the prayer card. That's what it's saying. It's saying, look out. This is a dangerous place to be. And there are really three things that make it bad for humans, right? It's uninhabitable, without form and void. It's dark and there's deep water. You add up those three things, that is not a good place to live. And if you look at the rest of this chapter, here's what happens. God begins to take care of those three problems, right? First thing, light. Got to turn the lights on. Next thing, if you look at days one, two, and three, God forms this land because it was without form. And then day four, five, and six, he fills what he formed in days one, two, and three. They exactly parallel each other. It's God's taking care of the problems with the land. He wants to create a really good place to put Adam and Eve. So he forms this land and then he fills it with creatures for the ocean and creatures for the land and vegetation and finally humanity. So they, they, it parallels perfectly. It's brilliant. So verse one, God creates everything. And, and then he takes this little unfinished section and he makes it awesome. Well, time out, Matt. Why would God do that? 
Why would God in verse one create everything but leave somewhere unfinished? That doesn't make sense to me. God's not like that. God's not gonna leave one little area unfinished, is he? He's not like my husband with a bunch of unfinished projects in the garage. It's become a howling nightmare out there, a wasteland, uninhabitable. I mean, that's not God, is it? Well, read the text. What does God do from that point on? Day one, he creates. Is he finished on day one? No. Day two, he creates. Is he finished on day two? Huh-uh. Day three, he creates. Is he finished on day three? Huh-uh. Right? He takes six days to just complete this little chunk of land. Now, could, have, could God have done it all in one day? Now, we can read this in four minutes. God wasn't like, whoa, man, that is an undertaking. I got a to-do list this thing out. I got to calendar this out. I got to, whoo, there's just no way I can do all this in a day. No, God's actually informing us about the Imago Day, about how work is supposed to be done. He's informing us that guess what? You don't have to try to do everything today. That do what you can do today and then kick back. Work hard when you're supposed to work and then rest when you're supposed to rest. It's actually God giving us a rhythm to life. It's much more than just, you know, oh, how, it's why. Why does God do it that way? Because God didn't have to do it that way. So God seems very comfortable with creating in steps or days. He has no problem with it. I'll create a little today, then I'll go enjoy myself with the angels or whatever. And then I'll create a little bit tomorrow and then I'll just keep working this process. It's God, God's okay with that. So God had created everything and he was okay having a little place called the hot audits not being finished. I'll get to that, okay? So here's my take on verses one and two. God creates everything. Some period of time passes, one year, 10 years, a thousand years, a million years, 10 million years, a billion years. I don't care how long. I don't argue that with anybody, right? When the kid comes home from his RCC class and he says, man, I took a geology class and this rock is a billion years old. I say, that is so awesome. That's it. What about Jesus? As quick as I can, hey, that's so awesome. Let's get to Jesus. Why? Because verse one tells me God already created it. And he could have waited as long as he wants to make this ha audits. And then out of this chaos, out of this chaos, God's spirit hovers over it. God's word speaks into it day by day by day. And out of chaos, he creates paradise and it culminates in rest. That's verses one and two. Now, how does that inform us? What does that tell us about God then? Oh, I have a list of things. I'll give you four. Four that give us the understory to this thing. Number one, it tells us this. God is a giver. God wants to bless the socks off Adam and Eve. I know I'm gonna create these guys and they're gonna have kids and I wanna make a really awesome spot for them to flourish and to multiply and exist. I want paradise for them. What you're getting from the very early part of Genesis is God's a giver, not a taker. God is generous. God wants the best for his children, wants them to flourish. Dads, don't you want that? Mom, don't you want that for your kids? So I took three Mondays in a row, my day off, because my daughters wanted to change their room. 
And so we got up there and we made beds and made things and painted. I didn't do much painting, but a lot of other stuff. Made it. And now you go up there and it's paradise. I will have to admit myself. Paradise. <laughs> Why? Because I love my girls and I want them to be in a place where they say, I like this. I love that. So very, very early on, you're getting God saying, I want good things for my kids. I want a beautiful paradise for my kids because he's a giver. Number two, it is God who prepares places for his people. Right here, step one, it's God preparing a place for his people. Now this gets echoed in Genesis 12 with Abraham. Abraham, I'm gonna give you this land. Look, everywhere that you can, I'm giving you this land. But it's gonna take 400 years to get it to you. So your great, 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 great grandkids are gonna enjoy this land because I'm gonna have to prepare it for a while. God's a preparer of places for us. David says, I wanna build you a temple. And God says, I'm gonna build you a house. I'm the preparer of places. Jesus to his disciples, John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Because in my father's house are many rooms. I wouldn't tell you that unless I was going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. He is the preparer of places for his people. The book of Revelation to me is super simple. It's earth being crucified, buried, and resurrected into new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth, because Jesus is preparing a place for his kids, his brothers and sisters to flourish for eternity. He is the preparer of places. So when I understand that, then I say, okay, well, my job or my home or my neighborhood or my friendships, all those things have been prepared by God whether it's forever or for a season. So I'm gonna go to that job. I'm gonna go to my neighborhood. I'm gonna go to my home and say, okay, God, you prepared this for me. How do I live in it? How do I make it paradise? How do I cast out darkness and formlessness and those things? That's what you mean to do. Number three, the gospel has always been plan A. Do you see the gospel in verse two? It's Matt. Your life is an uninhabitable, formless, void, dark nightmare. But my spirit is gonna woo and hover and draw you in. And then my word is gonna speak into you day after day after day. And I'm gonna transform you from a nightmare into paradise that culminates in rest. It's the gospel right there. It's brilliant. It's why the Bible says over and over and over again that this thing was before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4, he chose you before the very foundations of the world. It wasn't Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin. Oh no, crisis team, come in here. What are we gonna do? No, it's always been the plan. 1 Peter 1.20, Revelation 13, that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. Before this happens, God already had the plan, plan A. And then lastly, lastly, God is the chaos tamer. God is the one that tames chaoses. And maybe in America, maybe even broader than that, 
we need to have a theology that recaptures is God alone who tames chaoses. Because so often, even Christian circles, we begin to look at other things, other methods, other ideas that we say, oh, that'll tame a chaos. Well, right out of the gates, verse two, God is the one that tames chaoses, that takes chaotic, crazy, uninhabitable, formless, void, dark, deep things and brings paradise and rest out of them. God alone, God alone. And maybe this might be most important for some of us because there's always been earthquakes and hurricanes and famines and that kind of stuff, that kind of chaos. But today, I say in America, we are inventing new ways to be chaotic. We have chaos that's unparalleled in history. International terrorism, okay, that's chaotic. Nuclear weapons in North Korea, okay, that's chaos. Ethnic cleansings throughout our globe, that's chaos. School shootings, man, that is chaos. Political upheaval, man, that is chaos. Hate crimes, unfettered abortion, drug abuse, substance abuse, pornography abuse, child abuse. We just, we're inventing new ways to be chaotic. And God is still saying, I can tame those chaotic situations. I am the one by my spirit. I will hover. I will renew. I will take you from glory to greater glory, from hope to hope, from peace to peace. I'm the one. Come to me. He's the chaos tamer. And today we get to come to these tables where if there's a better illustration of taming chaos, I don't know of it. Because Jesus was crucified on, what do we call it? Good Friday, right? Was it Good Friday? If you lived on that day and you were friends with Jesus, was that Good Friday? No, it was the worst day ever. But what happened on Good Friday? He tamed the chaos. He defeated death. He defeated sin. He put the world back under rightful subjugation. He tamed my flesh. That's why we call it good, because he tamed it. And so when we come to the table, we're coming to say, Jesus tamed this chaos. And maybe you came in here and your marriage is a mess. It's chaos. Maybe you came in here and your finances are chaos. Your kids are out of control. Your boss is chaotic. Your work is chaotic. Your neighborhood's chaotic. You're addicted to a substance or to images. And you say, my life is chaos. We come to the chaos tamer. And we say, Jesus, help me. Take the void in my life that I'm trying to fill with wrong things. And you fill it. Take the formlessness to me, just my disorderedness, Lord, and would you order it today? Take the darkness that seems to gravitate and grab my soul and shine light in there. Take the deep, dark junk and draw up something more solid. And he's the one that does it. He is the chaos tamer. So when you come to the table today, 
Bring your chaos to him. There is no other tamer. Bring your chaos and eat and drink filling and forming and light and power. That's what we do at the table. So Jesus, you are the one that called light out of darkness. You are the one that fills empty souls. You are the one that gives purpose. You're the one that gives new hearts and new spirits. You're the one that cleanses from chaotic sinfulness. And so we as your body come this morning to the table hopeful, expectant. Knowing that you alone can take our brokenness and bind it up. You alone can fill voids. You alone can cleanse from the messes that we make. And so we come to you, Lord, bringing our chaos and praying that you would create day by day, renewing us, remaking us, reforming us in your image. For the eternal goal of paradise and rest in your presence. So may today be a step out of darkness, a step into order, a step into strength for us today. As we drink and eat, tame our chaos as we pray. We pray this in your name, amen.